Bibles today, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, so first book in the New Testament, but the last chapter of that book, Matthew 28, is going to be the text we focus on in this morning, and that is page 835 on those pew Bibles, in the pew Bibles, so I hope you'll be able to follow along as we're in the scriptures. I was reminded this morning, I don't know if you think this often, but when you come to gather on Lord's Day, how you listen each Sunday depends on who you think is speaking. So obviously I'm the sinful, saved by grace instrument that is speaking, but if we're convinced that the words of God are gonna be proclaimed, it makes a world of difference on how engaged we are, doesn't it? So this morning, our prayer is that the Lord will speak powerfully through his word and will be transformed as a result. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, and we're going to get right into it because we're going to celebrate Lord's table together here in just a few minutes. So um, this is an introduction to a series of messages over the next seven weeks entitled Missio Ecclesia, which is Latin for the mission of the church. And what is the church supposed to be doing and that is the topic that we're going to deal with, God willing, over the next seven weeks, um, me and the other pastors. So please look at this very familiar passage in Matthew 28. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's ask the Lord's help. Oh, Lord, we do pray this morning that, Spirit of God, you would use your word and implant it deep into our hearts. Give us understanding free us, Lord, of all of the cares of this world that so easily choke the word. We're very aware that um, so many of us carry, all of us carry a certain amount of distractions and static of this life and cares of this world, burdens that we're bearing, questions that we have, relationships that are strained. Lord, it's difficult for us to set those aside and allow your spirit to clearly speak to our hearts, but we pray that that would happen today. You would change us, Lord. You change this church. May we be on mission, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My father-in-law is a history buff. He's a Civil War reenactor. He has been to Gettysburg on many occasions, and anytime he visits, he wants to see something else historic. And so it wasn't too many years ago that he was visiting us, and my wife and my mother-in-law wanted to go to this horrible place in the Philly area called Ikea. It's a horrible place. It's something that they have this display. You think you're buying a piece of furniture. Then you go to the sub-level. Um, I'm not going to describe for you that sub-level, but you find out that everything that you saw upstairs is placed in a box in a million pieces. And so I was not excited about that trip, but my father-in-law decided, let's go see the USS or the SS United States that's parked right there at Pier 92. To be honest with you, I knew nothing about that ship, so my father-in-law began to tell me about the ship SS United States. I'm not sure if you, being so local, have all had an opportunity to visit the ship, walk around it. I don't think you can go in it too often. 
it's just a shell anyway. They've removed everything except the structures uh, due to asbestos years ago. But the SS United States, this large ship, was envisioned in the 1940s, and it was inspired by the Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary liners, the British liners, which transported hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops and Allied troops to Europe during World War II. Now, you may have known that, but I didn't until my father-in-law educated me. And that this ship was supposed to be the fastest, largest made in the U.S., and it was also supposed to transport troops uh, to world wars that we would have in the, in, the, in the future or any other type of embattlement. Well, that is not exactly what happened. In fact, um, when on its maiden voyage, it did do what they were hoping it would do. On July 3rd to 7th, 1952, on its maiden voyage, it broke the eastbound transatlantic speed record, and it still holds it today, my understanding, which is, fun fact to no one tell, three days, 10 hours and 40 minutes, if you were wondering, and uh, that was 10 hours faster than the Queen Mary. It still holds that record, but the government's plan was to use this ship again as a troop carrier, but that never happened. On its maiden voyage, it was nothing more than a luxury liner, and it catered to the wealthy customers. It was one of the first um, cruise liners that would take that transatlantic trip. And in 1969, because of air travel taking over, it went out of business. It served its last customer in 1969, and then it was sold to various people and ended up in 1996 at Pier 82 on the Delaware River in Philadelphia. Now, the irony of that whole story just caught me, and it, also, it often catches me when I come to this passage or other passages in the New Testament that tell us what the church is supposed to be doing. Because here was a ship that was envisioned to be a troop-carrying ship that turned out to be nothing more than a luxury liner that catered to wealthy customers. The irony can't be missed, can it? It's decaying now on Pier 92 in Philadelphia and never carried any troops. What we see in the New Testament is actually the church is supposed to be a troop-carrying liner, not a luxury liner. It's supposed to be some type of a fishing boat rather than a cruise ship. Are we on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we clear what the mission is? You know, there is a lot of debate actually right now amongst evangelicals in broader Christianity and even in more local Christianity about what is the mission of the local church? What are we supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be doing everything that's good and should we give equal energy to every good endeavor? Or are there some clear marching orders that the Lord Jesus Christ has given his church that we are supposed to be accomplishing? I believe it's the latter, not the former. And I believe that we are supposed to be on mission as a local church. I believe what we have read here, and I want to suggest to you over the course of the next seven weeks, and hopefully convince you if you're not convinced already, that the final commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Great Commission, must be the first priority of a local church. So a local New Testament church should make the last commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Great Commission, its first priority. Now, I, I, don't accept, I don't expect for you just to believe me, even though I hope you believe the Scriptures over me. I do want to try to convince you. But I want to start with this, and you'll notice in your 
worship bulletin, a little handout, because we're going to dip deeper into these things in the coming weeks. But there are multiple choices out there today. There's big discussions about churches being missional. Maybe you've heard that word. It sounds really hip, doesn't it? Are we a missional church? What is the mission of the church? And what do we even mean by mission? Some churches mean discipleship. They mean gospel outreach. Some churches mean doing good deeds. And some churches say, well, no, it's not one or the other. It's actually both. Is a church mission different than Jesus' mission, for instance? Are we supposed to be ongoing the mission that Jesus accomplished when he was here on earth? Are we supposed to continue to try to redeem and restore society like he ultimately will? We do agree that the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We do believe that there's a real heaven and hell. We do believe that people are lost without Jesus. But even in orthodoxy, there's vast disagreement about what the mission of the local church actually is. And I'm hoping this series will give us some biblical clarity. Now, mission, unfortunately, is not a biblical word. You're not going to find it in your translation of the New Testament or the Old Testament. It's not like the word gospel. It's not like the word justification. It's not like the word covenant, words that we love in our Bible. It's a word that has kind of been a summary word, like the word trinity, that describes the three persons of our one God, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word mission is to describe just that. But then we have to ask the question, what do we mean by mission? Now, if you grew up in a church, you're very familiar with this word, aren't you? You're familiar with missionaries. You're familiar with mission fields. You're familiar with mission trips. You're familiar with mission work. But what exactly is mission? Well, this used to be something that was easily defined by most Christians. I'm not that old, but if you were to ask me as a teenager, what exactly is missions? I would have said, well, that's generally people that you send out from the church to cross-culturally to tell people who are unbelievers or non-Christians the gospel, and they plant churches as a result of those who believe the gospel. That's how I would always describe missions, and I'm not alone. That's how many Christians over the years would have described the mission of the local church, spreading the gospel. But now it's become very broad. I love this statement by Stephen Neal. Now, he is not writing as a believer or he's not writing as someone who is critiquing biblical missions or the mission of the church, but he makes this statement, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. If everything is mission, nothing is mission. I think that's profound. So, so what he's saying is, if everything has the priority as this is what Jesus has called us to do, then by default, nothing actually is priority because it's all flat. All of it's priority. But did the Lord Jesus actually prioritize what the church is supposed to be doing? Now, I ask you that rhetorically because I hope to prove to you that the Bible is very clear, actually, with what the church is supposed to be doing and pouring its energies into. But now there is some question because you'll hear churches, Christians, Christian authors. I've even heard it on the radio this week on the Christian radio station, that now mission has become basically any good deed. You'll hear missions described as environmental stewardship. So caring for the environment now has become part and parcel of the Christian mission. Racial justice has certainly become a popular one that you will hear Christians and churches and authors and podcasts 
began to tell the church that actually participating in um, racial justice or dealing with injustices is the mission of the church. Community renewal or social justice or, or being a blessing to our neighbors. You'll even hear some people say, you know, the Lord Jesus said the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the mission of the church is love God and love neighbors. Well, the etymology of the word mission actually helps us here. Even though it's not a biblical word, the whole idea of mission is actually in the Bible. In the book of John alone, the Lord Jesus refers, I think it's 40 times. If you want to count and see if I'm wrong, go right ahead. It'll be good for you. But about 40 times, the Lord Jesus says in the Gospel of John, according to the author, John, the Father sent me. He, he regularly refers to the Father sending him. And one of the commission passages we'll look at in just a moment, in John 20, the Lord Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, so send I you. There's pretty much universal agreement that the word mission used in business, mission statements, living missionally, even in churches, imply two things. And again, this is not a biblical definition. It's just our understanding of the word mission. And I think you'll see it reflected principally in the Bible. And here it is, these two things. The word mission means somebody has sent someone. And the second half of that is he sent the someone to do something. Okay, so, so here's what mission is. It has two parts. In order to be on mission, you had to have been sent to do something, and that person who sent you sent you to do something. Now, again, I know that's somewhat awkward. It's not a cute little definition, but in order to be on mission, you had to have been authorized by someone, and you had to have been authorized to do something. Now, with that understanding of the word, I want us to think in terms of what we're seeing in a broad aspect. And again, we're going to narrow these down. But here are some categories that I placed in your notes that I want you as a believer and as a local church, as privileged to be one of your pastors, to consider when you hear much today about different missions or, or broadening the whole mission of the church and here are the categories that you'll hear often, and they actually reflect seasons of the, the church's history where these became emphasized, and so much so that the mission of the church became de-emphasized. One is mercy ministries. This was a time in the church's history where a real emphasis became on social gospel. What I mean by social gospel is maybe one of your favorite books was In His Steps by Sheldon. It was one of my favorite books, but you have to be careful what you're reading because actually that book, although it's impacting and it's reflection of what would Jesus do, and later on the bracelets WWJD that became so popular, the focus really was you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in helping the poor, helping those that are destitute or downtrodden. Now, should the church in close proximity and moral proximity to people they know or people that they have relationships with contribute to the material well-being that those that are destitute and downtrodden and all God's people said yes the scriptures do employ us to do that but is it the mission of the church that's been the debate because when it became the mission of the church it became on par with what we see in this passage of scripture that we just read of proclaiming the gospel Secondly, there is the social and racial justice issue. This is more current. 
is the mission of the church the same as the Messiah ultimately be when he is the great social liberator, when he gives us the great year of jubilee, when all wrongs are made right and all oppression is relieved? Some believe it's political transformation. Some of you are not too old to remember what some evangelical leaders call the moral majority. And their, their whole mission ultimately became trying to transform the political system in our country so that it reflected what they believed to be that of a Christian nation. And then you'll hear one that I call the junk drawer. This is kingdom building, and I've probably used this expression incorrectly before with you, and I, I'm repenting of that and hopefully won't do it again. But you hear a lot of Christians talk about doing this good deed or doing that good deed, and you're out there, and I'm out there, and we're all building the kingdom. Well, actually, you read your New Testament, you never find anywhere that we're encouraged to or told to build the kingdom. Actually, Jesus is building his kingdom, and what we see in the New Testament is there's a passive approach that we have to the kingdom. We are led in by God's grace, by his sovereign grace as we believe the gospel, and we become citizens of the new kingdom. Ultimately, he will rule and reign for all eternity. But nowhere in the New Testament are we employed to start building the kingdom. I know we love to use that phrase. Why is it dangerous then? I want to raise this question before we go to the second point. Why is it dangerous for us to have multiple missions as a local church? You may say, well, why can't we have a multiple of missions? Because that way we can be involved in gospel declaration as well as good deeds. I mean, are those really bipolar? Well, no, they're not bipolar. In fact, the scriptures tell us that our good deeds will actually dress up the gospel. So my making this point is not to say, please, believers, stop participating in good deeds. Oh, no. We're told in Matthew that our good deeds will actually glorify our Father. And people will witness our good deeds and give him glory. What we are seeing, though, is there is not multiple missions. And the danger of having multiple missions happens this way. When someone gets involved in something that's good, even something that's biblical, but is not the mission, and they begin to give it the same passion, the same priority as the mission, what should be a could participate in becomes an ought. You know what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, whether it's mercy ministries, ministering to the poor, whether it's social racial justice, whether it's political transformation or kingdom building or even a pro-life position, these are wonderful causes and causes that believers should speak to and be involved in. But when they become the mission, those who are not gifted or not as passionate about one of those areas, they begin to be made to feel guilty because they're not participating in the mission that God has called his church to be involved in. The clarity here is very important because we want to be doing what Jesus called us to do. Yes? That wasn't a good, strong answer. <laughs> we want to be doing what Jesus has commissioned us to do. Yes? That was much better. Yes, we, we do. So get unclarity or lack of clarity in this is very damaging. And I, I believe what can happen is local churches, believers, can be entrapped uh, by, um, I will not call it false teaching immediately, but I will say emphases that are placed in accordance, not in accordance with this way the scriptures emphasize what the church should be doing. 
Now, with that introduction, I'm not going to be able to deposit or go deeper in those. We want to do that in a deeper, another series, another message. But I want you to go to the second point, which is making disciples. I want you to eyeball these real quickly. I want you to see what the scriptures tell us in these mission passages. And before we look at them, we're going to spend very little time on them because I want you to see them before we celebrate Lord's table. But I want to introduce them this way. In the Old Testament, it's very important for us to understand that before the commission that the Lord Jesus gives here in Matthew 28, Old Testament believers were never encouraged to go out and proselytize other pagans. They were not told to go to the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Parasites and all the other sites to tell them to be converted. Actually, what happened in the Old Testament dispensation is what we see is the believers of God's people are encouraged to invite the pagans to come and see. That's why in the temple court, there was a Gentile court. There was a court of women, there was a court of Israel, but there was also a Gentile court. In Ephesians, we're told that wall came tumbling down in Christ, amen? And now we, we're not only looking from far away, but we are included in the family of God. But in the Old Testament, they would come and see they were encouraged to let the pagans see the glories of their great God, Jehovah. That all changes in the New Testament. And I don't want you to miss this climax because in the New Testament, it's no longer come and see. It's go and tell. Do you see this? This is a huge change. We only have one history book in the New Testament. It's the book of what? Okay, what is it? Acts is the only history book in the New Testament. We have many history books in the Old Testament. So we're able to see them over and again saying, come and see. There's not this go and tell. But the one history book we have in the New Testament, we see how the people of God responded to this commission. And they went and told people. They went and told. So with that introduction, I want you to see these. We're in Matthew 28. And you should not only see the meaning of passages that we look at, you should also enjoy the mood. There is an incredible mood going on right here in Matthew 28. Remember, this begins with the resurrection of Christ and the account of the women coming to the tomb. And then Jesus reveals himself to them and he says, go and tell my brothers that I'm gonna meet them in Galilee. So he meets them in Galilee, and this is the moment we have, and we're told in verse 16 that some of the 11, you may ask why are there only 11? Because Judas has already taken his life, he's betrayed the Lord, and now there's just 11. They haven't added one to their number in Acts yet. So the 11 meet Jesus, and some of them are doubting, and some of them believe. Do you see that in the passage? You may say, well, why did some of them doubt? Well, none of them believed Jesus was coming back from the dead. <laughs> none of them believed this was going to happen. And so there were some that said, I, I can't imagine that he's alive. And here Jesus says in verse 18, don't miss this. He said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he gives them this commission. He gives them this mission. I don't want you to miss this because the Lord Jesus is going to give an indicative before he gives an imperative. I'm not trying to use big words. This is really important. The Lord Jesus says, all authority is given to me now as the resurrected Christ in heaven and in earth. So all political leaders, I'm their authority. I'm the sovereign leader not only of all political leaders, kings, presidents, prime ministers, of all ages and of all times, but I'm also authoritative over all of the principalities and powers of this air. 
He's talking about good angels. He's talking about demons. He's talking about Lucifer. He's talking about Michael. He's talking about Gabriel. He's saying, I am authoritative over all of it. Doesn't that change the mood of this commission? The Lord Jesus, risen, he has overcome the last great enemy, death, and he says, all authority is mine. Here's what you're supposed to do. Remember the definition of mission. You have to be sent by somebody with authority. And Jesus is sending them with authority, and he's sending them on a specific mission. Now, again, I want to help you a little bit with the grammar here, okay? Just stay with me on this. There's one command with three participles hanging on the one command. Maybe you could think of it like this, a Christmas tree with three ornaments. <laughs> the Christmas tree is the one command. And the one command is, go and make disciples. Do you see that in your text? So the only command here is go and make disciples. But those of us that know our English, we understand that participles that are used with a command or the imperative mood, they also enjoy the imperatival force or the, or the command force. So he's going to say there's three ways you go and make disciples. So here's the mission of the local church according to Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Go and make students. Go and make followers of Jesus. This is the marching orders of the church. There's three ways to do it. Do you see it here? Here are the three participles. What are they? Going, baptizing, and what? Okay, that was not the bold answer I was hoping for. Going, baptizing, and... Okay, we're doing better. He, now, you may wonder why is there no I-N-G on the going? Well, I, I believe this is accurate. It's reflecting that this is a command too. He's saying, go, baptize, and teach. So we're not obeying the command fully if we're not doing all three, right? You see what's happening here? So he's saying, here's the commission. Go and make disciples. You do that by going. You do that by baptizing. And you do that by teaching. Real quickly, the going here has that idea of being sent. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is sending his disciples. Now, there's some of you that question this. And you say, well, that was just for the 11 disciples. And when they died, it was all done. And that commission is not for all of us. This mission is not for the local church. Well, two things there. You'll notice at the end of this, he says, I'm going to be with you until the end of the what? Okay, so this presence of the risen Christ as they complete the mission that he's given to them is not just until the death of the 11 apostles. It's until the end of the what? Age. Second thing I would help you consider is when you get to the history book of the Acts, how are they going to obey this command? If they decide to stop spreading the gospel after the 11 die, then that would make sense. But if you see something different, that after the 11 die and you see the epistles, they continue to chatter the gospel to every place on the planet, then this is also for all of us as followers of Christ. Going and then baptizing. Now, baptizing is, is not just talking about immersing someone in the waters of baptism. That certainly is being pictured here. But it is the marking off of those that repent and believe the gospel. So a person's baptized because they respond to those who've gone with the message of the gospel. And finally, we're to teach them all things that I've commanded to you. So now he's picturing gathering these believers baptizing them, marking them off as believers, and then what? Discipling them. So the Lord Jesus says you're to do this to all people groups. When you see the word nations here, please don't hear certain countries. What he's saying here is we get our word ethnicities from this. He's saying every people group you're to go to 
and get, make disciples of. So the, G, the Lord Jesus, the all-powerful Jesus, catch the mood here, envisions all people groups on the planet hearing the gospel and becoming disciples in every imaginable people group and ethnicity. And what do we see ultimately? We know how this wins, don't we? We know Jesus wins, and when Jesus wins, what happens around the throne? Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group is what? Around the throne singing, worthy is the? Okay, this is the ultimate completion of the mission. Now, eyeballs these with me real quickly. Mark 16, we're not going to go into this, um, has a different understanding of the ending. But I want you to see two places in Mark that's going to speak towards the gospel spreading. Look over at Mark 13. That's 849 in your pew Bibles. Mark 13, verse 10. The Lord Jesus here is going to speak about the ultimate spreading of the gospel across the planet. Mark 13, look at verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all what? All nations. And look at 14.9. Just a couple pages over. 14.9, referring to when he was anointed by Mary in Bethany. And he says, and truly I say to you, whoever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Again, the Lord Jesus is anticipating that this gospel is going to do what? It's going to go global. Turn over to Luke 24. This is the passage that Phil read in our call to worship. In Luke 24, verse 44, the Lord Jesus here is commissioning his disciples again. And instead of referring to his own authority now, guess where he refers to? The Scripture's authority. Do you see this? He says in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father, referring to the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Again, a little different here. But again, he's saying, I want you to go and preach this message of repentance and forgiveness. So what is repentance? Well, repentance consistently in the word of God is a turning from something. I don't know if you've enjoyed much of the Olympics this time, but one of, I'm not a good swimmer. My family will tell you I'm not a strong swimmer at all, but I enjoy watching the swimming. And you may have seen the U.S. men's swimming team the other night on the 4x100 medley relay as they won the goal. And, you know, Caleb Dressel came continued to get all of these gold medals. But the thing that fascinates me the most is, is that flip turn that they do right there at the halfway mark. I did a little reading about how important that is, and, and I guess that really makes or breaks your, your contest on many occasions because if you don't turn and do your, your somersault accurately and push off of the wall exactly the right time, uh, you may lose the a relay or the, the race. You know, that turn is exactly what he's talking about here. It's not a work that someone accomplishes, but it is the acknowledgement of need. And the gospel being presented is a call for people everywhere to repent, to turn, to go the opposite direction and confess their need for Christ and believe the gospel and they will receive forgiveness of sins. A very short um, Commission is given in John. So if you'll turn over to John 20 now, 19 to 23, I want you to see that. 
John 20. And here we're told this was right after the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the disciples, where are they? They're scared. <laughs> They've locked themselves in a room. <laughs> and they're not coming out. And, and this is where the Lord Jesus shows up. Verse 19, on the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm what? Sending you. And then he pictured, I believe here, I do not believe this is when they actually received the Holy Spirit. I think that happens in Acts 2. But he says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that may seem a little bit difficult for you, but understand in this passage, he's saying that the authority that in Matthew 28, he said, I have all authority in heaven and earth. And now when you preach this gospel and make disciples, those that believe the gospel will have their sins, what? Forgiven. And those who do not believe the gospel will be condemned. So he's not saying they have any power in and of themselves. He's saying wherever you go with this gospel as gospelizers, as being on mission, there is an innate power to the gospel because Jesus Christ has been fully authorized. One last passage. Again, I wanted you to eyeball these this morning in introduction, but turn to Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, this very familiar ascension, this is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke as well. He says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I believe this is a prophecy not a mission strategy. Some churches will look at this and say, well, let's identify our Jerusalem, let's identify our Samaria, let's identify our Judea, and let's identify our uttermost part. No, I believe what's happening here is he's saying that the gospel is actually going to be preached to the ends of the earth. I would suggest to you that Downingtown, Pennsylvania, from Jerusalem is about that. <laughs> and here we are. I mean, the gospel went forth. But, but here's the key I want you to see. In the one history book of the New Testament, if the first believers, and you hear a lot today about, let's get back to vintage Christianity. It just sounds good, doesn't it? It makes for good bumper stickers. Let's get back to vintage Christianity. You know, sandals and sand in the auditorium. I mean, just let's do it. But, but what is vintage Christianity actually? Vintage Christianity, what you find in the book of Acts is these people who were locked in a room are now preaching the gospel everywhere. That's what they're doing. You say, I, I'm not sure I believe you. Well, I'm glad you said that. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 8. I want you to see one other passage. I know I said that was the last one, but I want you to see one other because you raised that objection. And I want you to see this. In Acts 8, you remember Saul before he became Paul? This is the death of Stephen, and we're told in verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the what? Okay, you got to key in on these words against the church in Jerusalem, and they, who's the they? Okay, the church, you got it. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the who? Okay, everybody listen again. I just want to review. Who's scattered? Except for who? Okay, who's scattered? Except for the who? Okay, keep, keep with me here. Look at verse four. Now those who were scattered, who's that? Except for the who? 
went about preaching the what? You see that? That's what you see throughout the book of Acts. This is not just 11 apostles who are taking their little marching orders and the rest of the church doesn't have the same mission. Actually, what you see is the church understood that when they were scattered abroad, they were to be doing the same thing, even when the disciples and the apostles weren't with them. Do you see this? That's how we get places like, how did a church get on Crete? We, we don't have any word from any apostles going to Crete and planting a church. Well, you know how? All the church, when they were scattered abroad, were preaching the what? The word. Now, folks, again, I'm not going to spend as much time on this, but I do want to highlight something. If I'm looking at the book of Acts, somewhat, hopefully, objective, and I'm saying, okay, what's the mission of the church? What were these vintage Christians really involved in and lathered up about? If you're looking for a picture of an early church giving itself to creation care or plans for societal renewal and strategies and serving their community in Jesus' name and all those things are noble and seeking for racial and social justice, you will not find that in the book of Acts. And please, please hear me. I, I didn't say that all those other things are not noble, good deeds. I didn't say they should be abandoned. But if we're looking for clarity on the mission of the local church, I would expect to see these vintage Christians busy with that. Yes? What we see in the book of Acts is if you're looking for preaching and teaching and the centrality of the word and the gospel, this is your book. The story of the Acts is a story of the earliest Christians' efforts to carry out this great mission given to them in the Gospels. And I want to suggest to you as a church that that's the same mission that we have today, and we need clarity on it. Again, it's not to say that all those other endeavors are to be abandoned, that, that, that they're not important and noble and redemptive. What it is to say is there is one mission order that the Lord Jesus Christ, who has all authority, has given his church. And here it is, make disciples. So the question is, how are we doing? Now, if you're looking at your bulletin, you're going to notice that I was not good with um, limited verbosity with my definition. But if you put it all together, here it is. The mission of the church is to go into the world and to preach the gospel to every people group under the power of the Holy Spirit, those that repent and believe are to be marked by baptism, gathered together in churches so that they can be taught all things that Jesus taught us himself and through the apostles and the inspiration of the scripture to the glory of the Father. That's the commission. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Why is there importance for us to have clarity here? Because this is what Jesus called us to do. I was talking to some of the pastors about this the other day. What if in our local church we started asking one another, how are things going with your mission? What would you say to another believer who asked you that? How are you doing with sharing the gospel? How are you doing with making disciples? Now, again, I don't ask you this just to weigh you with guilt. I really am. I'm not asking you for that reason. I'm simply saying, as a church, is it possible for us to kind of like the SS United States, to become a luxury boat that's lavish and a lot of enjoyment for the passengers that actually is not on mission and never is carrying troops to fulfill the mission that our 
almighty, authorized Savior gave us? Is it possible? I, I think the answer is yes. And I want to ask you as believers, as we, as we deal with this series over the next seven weeks, will you just simply ask the Lord to clarify for you what the mission is and clarify for you how involved are you in the mission? I want to invite every leader of every home here. There's some single moms that are leading homes. There are certainly our dads that are leading homes. There's some singles that are leading your own life right now. How are we doing in leading our family for living for this great commission and leveraging all of our assets so that we can obey the mission the Lord Jesus has given us? Also, at the end of each of these messages, I, I, I want to just encourage you with some tips. These are not profound, I promise you. But I was just doing some, some calculation. That's always dangerous because most of you know I'm horrible at math. But, but I was doing a few calculations, and I, I took the five zip codes that are closest to our church, about a 15-mile radius. And I was surprised by the amount of people that live in these boroughs and these townships. It, it's about 150,000 people. It's kind of a medium-sized city, isn't it? Or maybe a little better than that. I also began to look at some of the census, and I know those aren't always completely accurate, but they're close, right? And about 100,000 of those 150,000 say that they, they, they never really go to church. They might be Christers, Christmas, Easter, but other than that, they just don't go to church. So that's about 100,000 at least in our area, that we would say, okay, we at least know they're unchurched. We don't know that that means that they're absolutely unbelievers, but, but more than likely, they are. Now, here's where the statistics come in, and I'm not sure if these are completely accurate, but those who do them say that, generally speaking, um, in America and in our neck of the woods, you'll find that 20% of those people have no interest at all in religion or your church or hearing about the gospel, 35% of them will make excuses, and it's just a nice way of getting you off their back. But actually, 35% of them are waiting for you to say something. And would love to be invited and would love to know more. And would love to hear you when they're talking to you about their difficulties in their marriage for you to say, well, we've had difficulties too, but we've found amazing grace through our Christian faith. Or we'd love to invite you to something that's happening at our church. So if 35% of the 150,000, I think that's a little over 50,000. No, not, not 50,000, 44,860 or something like that. Again, I'm not that great at math. It's a lot of people that, that would respond to people on mission that would say, I, I want to prayerfully look for opportunities to burrow into some tunnels and some some some." bridges into unbelief in our community so that I can share the gospel with them. So here, here's the challenge I want to give to you. What if we started praying that God would give us those open doors and also pray that God would give us the courage, and that's why we're having the training here in a few months, the equipping, so that we might be busier about sharing the gospel, if this indeed is the mission that the Lord Jesus has given us. I want to encourage you to think that way. I also want to encourage you with something that we've talked about as, as leadership, that, that we, we had need to repent in some areas. And I have asked the Lord recently in my own family and my own leading of this church, I've been indifferent in some ways, in more ways than I would like to admit, in sharing the gospel. And I've been indifferent, and that indifference, I believe, has caused me not to lead you 
like God would call me to lead you into focusing on the mission that the Lord has given this church and he's given his church. And perhaps you have some areas that you need to repent in. Perhaps you found yourself indifferent. Perhaps you've found yourself making excuses and saying, well, there's certain people gifted for that and certain people aren't. I want us just to say, you know, the scriptures tell us that this is the mission that our great, almighty, authorized Savior has given us, then we should obey it. Amen? And we should seek to encourage one another. And, and I, I want to say that as well. This is not about guilt. This is about a community of faith saying we want to be a church that's being changed by God's powerful grace. And I believe a church that's changed by God's powerful grace will be on mission. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do pray, I pray, for forgiveness, for indifference, coldness, excuse-making, busyness, and lack of looking for, praying for, begging you for opportunities to disciple others, to go, to baptize, and to teach. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority is yours. Lord Jesus, you have promised, you've stated as fact that you're always with us until the end of the age. And so we need not fear. We go in your power. We go in your presence. And we praise you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit now is in our hearts and empowers us to speak the gospel truths to those who have not trusted in Christ. And we pray that you change your church, that you would grow us in the grace of gospel witness. Lord, we desire to be a church on mission. We do not desire to be a church in competition with other churches. We praise you for how you're saving souls through other ministries. We pray we would always rejoice. But Lord, when you're blessing others and the showers of blessings are falling on others. We pray you'd pass us not by, but we pray for those, those showers of blessings on this local church, that we would be faithful in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and his saving work. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. One of the beautiful